I think we we sometimes assume that people are for, far more fragile than they than they are. It's not to say that there won't be some people who develop PTSD, but the I think the the big R resilience is like our, how most people do respond to stress. But what I'm really interested in is like little R resilience. How do you kind of build more resilience into your everyday life? Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. What do we do on the podcast? Uh, We talk to wellness experts. What do we talk about? Mm, Wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. She's so pleasant. She's like so smart and thoughtful, but also just pleasant, you know? Like the way, just her like delivery of sometimes very complicated information. It's just like, it feels like easy and like nice and gentle. No. I felt held. I felt held. I totally agree. I feel like it was, so we're talking about Samantha Boardman, um, who... She's a clinical instructor in psychiatry. She's an attending psychiatrist at Weill Cornell. She's the author of Everyday Vitality. um, And she also has a website called um, positiveprescription.com. And she, I mean, the whole idea of like positive psychiatry, which sounds maybe trite, I guess, if you boil it down, but it actually really, you know, we focused more, we didn't talk about illness. We talk about like the worried well, as she put it, but but it felt very positive and very uplifting and very much, like you said, she's just very pleasant and like delivers yeah. all of this information in, in a way that actually makes it feel like inspiring as opposed to like, you know, kind of shaming and, and dark and sad. Yeah. I mean, we hit like, you know, we talk about all the obvious, uh, all the big ones, all the stress and anxiety and all that good stuff. And it just feels like so reframed in a way that is super useful um, yeah. and thoughtful. And you know, she kind of flipped things on uh, on their head. It's like it, she flipped the script a bit on psychiatry. Yeah. I like it. It's a good approach. And I will say that during the time, I think there's a moment in this um, recording where I'm talking about the stress of my children. And I was talking about it in the context of breakfast and getting them out the door and the absolute chaotic shit show that it is. We literally hit stop record. I looked down at my phone and my husband just texted me, Oscar threw up on the bus. <laughs> and I... And um, there's your morning. And scene. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, we talk uh, about micro stressors, how they accumulate. That sounds and, pretty macro to me. And and how we can be resilient, most <laughs> yeah. importantly. All right. A little positive, little positive psychiatry for you. Everyone enjoy. Have a listen. It's lovely. Hey, guys. So you may have figured out by now that Zoe and I are huge fans of functional mushrooms. And that's because their benefits are legit from increasing focus and concentration to helping you sleep and probably most importantly, providing incredible support for your immune system. And yes, that is actual science. You can check it out on our blog at earthandstar.com. But who doesn't need a little bit of extra immune support right now if we're being honest? But anyway, the most important thing for you to know, actually, is that you have to have these fabulous fungi in your system every day in order to reap the benefits. So Earth and Star, our new brand, is making it as easy as possible for you to get the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms every day. Like if you've got a serious cold brew habit, there's a can for that. If you love your afternoon matcha latte, then we've got you covered there. And if you're not like G-Love and you're not feeling the cold beverages, then how about a totally delicious dark chocolate bar that also helps you increase focus and concentration while satisfying your sweet tooth? And it pairs super well with red wine. So we at Earth & Star have created as many ways as possible to help you elevate your everyday routine because we are not asking you to add another pill or a powder to your very busy schedule of supplements We just want it to be as easy and absolutely delicious as possible for you to get some mush love into your life. So check us out at earthandstar.com and get 15% off your first order with the code HTW. 
Um, okay, well, officially welcome Dr. Samantha Boardman. We are very excited to have you here. Yay! We should have like a, um, we should introduce sort of just like an applause track, I think. Yeah, after like a little game <laughs> show audience. Yeah, I think that would be nice. Well, thank you. Um, well, we're thrilled to have you and to talk about your new book, Everyday Vitality which I have not gotten to complete, but I've definitely read some little bits and pieces here. And um, I'm definitely very excited to dive into the entire story because it's about turning stress into strength. And I mean, like, unfortunately, that's still quite topical for us, just this topic of stress. It's a constant. How are we going to get rid of it? What are we going to do? Before we get there, though, just will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've arrived at at, um, where you are and what's you know, where you want to go with the book and with your practice? Sure. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan and it really, it's an honor to be on your podcast. And um, so I, I am a classically trained uh, psychiatrist. I went to medical school for four years and I got really good at, you know, percussing abdomens and, and, and lungs and palpating, you know, testicles and you're very focused on what's wrong with people. And that's what you're good at. And that's you know what you're supposed to be good at. And it's the same in psychiatry. When you are training to become a psychiatrist after four years of medical school, you spend sort of four years trying to sort of figure out what um, somebody's symptoms mean, what diagnosis they have, how to treat them, how to basically make them less miserable. And I got pretty good at, at misery. And you know I could pretty quickly come up with a diagnosis and you know know what medications to prescribe. But one day, about 10 years ago, I was treating a patient, a woman I'd been seeing for a couple months. I thought we were making progress. She had a lot of stressors in her life, just kind of super stressed out, but didn't have like a sort of check the box clinical diagnosis for depression or anxiety. But she was just overwhelmed, conflicts with kids, husband, just like run of the mill stuff that so many people suffer from. And I thought we were making progress. I was sort of dialing down her symptoms in some way. And one day she came into my office and said, you know what? I just hate coming here. All we do is talk about the stuff and my life, it's going like badly. And, you know, sometimes I've even having a good day and I have to think of like, oh, what can I complain about in there? What can I sort of, what's going wrong? And she basically fired me. I never saw her again. And, you know, at the time I sort of tried to dismiss it, but she was so right. And I'd been focusing for so long on like pathogenesis, which is the study of disease, but not salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. And these can exist side by side. And I always had thought you have to sort of try to, you know, get rid of the symptoms before you can focus on anything else. And I think that that's just an unrealistic way for us to do it, you know, for those who have mental illness, but also for the worried well, for people who have regular stressors, like we can't get rid of some of these stressors anyway. So what can we do to live well within them? So I ended up going back to school and getting a degree in positive psychology that was the opposite of everything I learned in, in medical school and psychiatry residency. It's really like the study of of mental health, not illness, and um, optimism, post-traumatic growth, uh, resilience, um, words that I rarely heard back when I was in medical school or studying psychiatry. And I really try to, you know, integrate all of these principles into my practice now. And I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist. And I'm just focused on sort of what the problems are, but also in building up one's strengths. And I think that's what helps us sort of deal with a lot of the stressors today. I love what you just said about the worried well. I feel like I'm 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 a proud card carrying member of that community. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, new vaccination card, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have it in my notes to bring that up because I thought that was such a great story. What you just shared about the patient who fired you. Um, I, as someone who literally just canceled her uh, one p.m. therapy appointment, I was like, for probably the third week in a row, I was just like, you know. And I remember my last therapy appointment, I was, I, I was just like, you know, the first question is like, how are you feeling? And I was like, man, like, I don't want to be here. Like, I really have nothing to say today. Like, I'm kind of like going through my file cabinet, like trying to mentally like discover something upsetting that I could potentially unpack. Whereas I would have otherwise just gone about my day, like perfectly happy. And, and it, it's funny. I was just like, I don't, um, I, I, I find this more disruptive. It's sort of like this false like forcing me into this false sort of like state of vulnerability or having to like open up and, and go into this gear that I don't necessarily want to go into in that way. So I just, I, I, I love the idea of like 
flipping that pot. And I did actually break up with one of my therapists once as well, because I was like, I, I feel like I come in here every day. Like I need to find material. Like I'm going on stand up. Like, I need to entertain you almost. And then with like problems that aren't necessarily there. And to your point, I think it, it felt, it started to feel very problem based as opposed to just like, I don't know, like, can, is there a way to come in and, and, and make it to your point more um, <laughs> positive? Yeah, no, and it's so interesting you share that and like just talking about that that file cabinet you would need to go through to to be like, wait, what what was bad enough that I could sort of bring up that we can, you know, dissect here? And you know, sometimes though, I, I think when when one has a reaction to their therapist and they feel like they're not making progress or they feel um, that there's something that's not helpful there. I always think it's important to bring that up with the psychiatrist too, because sometimes it, it means that like, like your response to the psychiatrist might be, or the therapist might be that like information, like maybe are you tiptoeing around something? Is there stuff you're not bringing up in here? So maybe that is, I mean, I never know with that, ther- that patient of mine, I never saw her again, but we're so fixated on what the problems are. And yeah, it almost feels like a waste of time. And I always like use the analogy, like you don't, go to the gym just so you can lose weight. Like you go there also so you can like feel strong and good. And I think that's something that maybe traditional therapy isn't focusing on enough. And I really try to bring that into my practice and try to, you know, thinking like, what are you looking forward to? What went well? You know, what are you going to do this week? Like what actions will you take to sort of help you sort of have your values overlap with like what your your actually your actions, um, and I think it's a much more kind of forward looking way. Um, I'm a big fan of you know negative emotions too. I'm not all rainbows and unicorns. Like I think you've got to you know sometimes they are data and information, but at the same time when we overdo it and even it gets that question of like rumination, like when you're mm-hmm. spending a lot of time like chewing your cud, you're going over the same thing over and over again. And women tend to ruminate. It's sort of our response to stress, I think more than men do, is we are ruminators. And you know, we don't even realize we're doing it. And sometimes we have a ruminate, like we ruminate in our own heads and we're thinking like, you know, so when you go over and over something that like just happened to you, or you're ruminating about something that might happen to you, like from the past or about the future. And it's so um it's really disruptive, I think, to our like being present in any way when we're dwelling on our fears of, you know, oh, I wish I had said that, or why didn't I, you know, maybe I was bored, why didn't I bring that up in the meeting, or you know, that that stuff. And we also co-ruminate sometimes, and we we ruminate with our friends and with our family, and it's sort of almost pseudo bonding, like, oh, you know, oh, isn't that person awful? Or you'll sort of bond over that venting or complaining but never really resolving it. Like it's always like, oh, it's almost like Groundhog Day. You're like, didn't we have this conversation a few days ago? You know, and if, if that if that's happening to you, know that you're doing that, even if people ruminate with their with their kids or with their spouses or with their but especially women tend to do it with each other a lot. And just to disrupt that cycle and be like, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? You know? Right. Well, well on that note, we ruminate a lot, Erica, I would say there's a lot of ruminating. <laughs> there's a lot and with other Women, but what, I mean, you talk a little bit about like the, um, I mean, we actually were sort of laughing about it one time, hanging out with a sort of gaggle of other women. I think we were all kind of talking about our problems in the context of our relationships with our partners, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just like, we just kind of broke and started laughing at one point to say like, what do you think the chances are that our significant others are spending this amount of time talking about, you know, Zoe, Erica, whoever, you know, all, every, every woman in the room and like trying to like break, break down sort of like where they are, you know, like it just, we went so deep on like their issues or maybe like their mindset, whatever. It was just like zero. They spend zero time. <laughs> zero time. Like there's just no way. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what, like, why, why do women seem to, I mean, stress more than men? Yeah. I mean, and, and this, that's what all of the data shows is that women do experience more stress or more likely to report stress. Um, and I th- think also that that shared stress. And I think when we're sharing it, there's an element of venting that can be therapeutic, but at the same time, it sounds like you're when you're chatting with your friends and you're laughing about it, that is a therapeutic function of it. But when, when it is that groundhog day, like, can you believe he did this again? Can you believe that? I mean, that's where it can sort of 
you know, devolve into more of like a toxic coping strategy. Whereas, you know, okay, like that's really annoying, but like, what's the action you're going to take? And I think women tend to live in our heads a lot more than men do. And I think that we are, um, and what I've really learned in, in studying positive psychiatry and trying to combine it with positive, um, uh, positive psychology and psychiatry is how that it's, you know, when we get out of our own heads is when we feel so much stronger. And I think that's also when we can have our values really, you know, collide with our actions. And so sometimes I'll ask patients, like when they first come to see me, like, okay, what are the three things you value the most in your life? Like, what do you really, really care about? And they'll say like, oh, you know, my family or my friends, my health, giving back, whatever that is. And then say, well, how do you spend your free time? And there's often like this wide gulf between it's like, well, I just like binge watch Netflix. And then I, you know, I just kind of laid in bed for a while. And then I, you know, there's stuff that isn't necessarily fortifying. And I think when you have more overlap between what you care about and like what matters to you and actually what you do, you're far more fortified. And I think for women, that's so important to feel strong, even with like the daily stressors, because it is especially for women, it is like the, the, the little stuff that gets us, you know, like it's the accumulation over time. And what we kind of, I think, underestimate as a society even is how much those little daily hassles undermine us and make us feel badly. And it really take a toll on our physical health and our mental health. And so whatever, you know, we kind of expect it to be like the big bad life event that really like mow us down the most. I think it was Muhammad Ali who said, it's not like the mountains of the boulders that kill you, it's the pebbles in your shoe. And I think women are super sensitive to those pebbles. And there are many reasons why these pebbles really add up and I think do take this toll on us. And one of it being like, we don't have the social support around it. Nobody brings you a casserole because you couldn't find a parking spot. Like nobody is like, you know, trying to like, oh, your flight was delayed. How awful. Like, let's, you know, like, let's talk about that. You know, nobody's ever wanted to talk about anyone's like flight problem. But you know, so how do we sort of build that positive support structure around ourselves though and create more overlap between like our intentions and what we value and the actions we take? Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're referring to, I guess what you, what you talk about in the book is like a micro stressor, right? Like that's what we're saying. These little, the example of the pebbles. Um, and I do, I mean, everything you're saying is just ringing so true. And by the way, you've listened to enough of our Podcast to know that we just generally come here seeking free advice from all of you experts. So <laughs> we like free therapy whenever we can get it. <laughs> but um, so yes, I definitely noticed that I am um, very susceptible to the micro stressors becoming then like a tornado of emotion that is inevitably kind of just like, you know, vented at the wrong time in the wrong direction, probably most likely at my husband. Eh, sometimes he deserves it. But, um, but I mean, the, the, I guess the, the 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 tricky part and the the challenging part and the I don't I can't get like how do why is that first of all like why is it that certain you know the the pebbles the micro stressors can impact somebody who you know to your point earlier otherwise not a mentally ill person I'm part of the worried well but like why is it that that will just so easily kind of rattle me and then somebody else could be subject to exactly the same circumstances and just find that it rolls off their back. I mean, all I ever wanted was to be one of those people that it just like rolls off their back and it, it doesn't. So like, wh- why is it? And, and what can, is there anything that's like an easy, an easy way to address it and fix it and, and at least acknowledge it? No, absolutely. And I think some people I've talked about like Velcro and Teflon people in the book a bit. And why are some people you know, sort of Teflon and it's just like water off a duck's back and they're fine and they just sort of shrug off these little hassles and other people are much more Velcro and it's like sticks there, like a piece of lint and you can't get rid of it. And that one annoying thing that happened this morning is still hovering over you, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon and affecting your experiences. And what it seems is that like all these hassles and the pebbles and the way that they add up, they're all perceived hassles and pebbles. Like, I mean, some things are just unequivocally annoying in some way, but you know, for what rattles us, it usually has to do with like our reservoirs of vitality that are there to kind of protect us or not. And there are really three essential ways to build vitality. And if you want to, you know, somehow balance or buffer all of the hassles in in your daily life, those micro stressors that are beyond your control, 
it's essential to make sure that you have uplifts on the other side. And I think if you can balance those, you buffer, you know, just like the spilled coffee, the, you know, little conflict you have with a coworker or whatever, that those irritations, the rainy day, it can then like you, you then like you're sort of creating the scaffolding around you because when you don't feel like you have the resources in this reservoir of vitality to meet whatever challenge you're facing, then then you're buckled by it. Then it's the, the bell front, it sticks to you. But if you do, and there are kind of just three really everyday ways to to get to get there. And it's with when you're feeling like you are connecting meaningfully with somebody else. And it could be so simple. It's like just a a positive conversation, a positive interaction with somebody. It could be the barista could be, you know, I'm having a positive interaction with you guys today. Like it, there's just something like a nice, meaningful conversation that's basically phone free. Or when you're doing something for someone else in some way, you're like you're adding value in some way. And the third way is when you're feeling challenged in some way. I call it like the three C's when you're connecting, when you're contributing, and when you're feeling challenged in a positive way. Those all create this buffer and scaffolding around you of vitality. So those little things don't stick to you as much. Mm, that's helpful. Yeah. Well, Erica, I mean, needle point. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I really do. I do that. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, I do feel like I, I mean, again, on, on a personal level, I feel like I really do all of the things, right? Like I have my meditation practice and I do my journaling and I have my gratitude and I exercise frequently and like I do all the things. And then there are still times where none of that matters. And it's just like, and that makes me feel really shitty about myself because I'm like, ah, oh, I'm just, I feel like I try and I can't get on top of this. And sometimes I can, but. But I mean, I think that's helpful. And if you think about like the challenge part, I think is is important. Um, well, it's being deliberate kind of very much about it because some of the stuff, like unless we're kind of making ourselves notice this stuff or do these things that they might just sort of pass us by. And actually needle pointing is interesting because it's something that I do as well. And I find it to be unbelievably calming and I needle point stuff that my husband hates. And then like, I like display it everywhere too. And it's just really doesn't go with like his look at all. And he does not, is not pleased by it. But those, you know, I had asked somebody I was um, hiring, like, oh, what's your hobby? And she's this young woman. She looked at me like I was asking her if she collected stamps or something. Like it was like some weird thing, like, what's your hobby? And yeah, it's like so important to have, you know, activities we do outside of our workspace that are, you know, it's almost like the highest form of love. Like a, a hobby is something you're just doing because you love doing it. And you're, you're even, you might even be mediocre at it. I, like my my needle pointing skills are really bad and like there's like wrong threads in there and everything. But even like having things that take you outside of whatever your your you know primary focus is in your life and your your profession to do things that sort of challenge you in some way, but the, there aren't the, the stakes aren't as high. It's like also fortifying. And the other part of that is like, you know, as you're saying, sometimes it all just feels like hell anyway, is the value of negative emotions. I think right now we're living, you know, in this world that there's so much pressure on us to like be happy all the time. And if we're not, there might be something actually wrong with us. And sometimes it's, you know, the negative emotions are truly data points. Like if what's going on, like what's happening with you, like when you are having those days when you feel like it's just too much, like really try to pinpoint what exactly it is that like is that you're feeling because otherwise it just hangs or hovers over you like a cloud like what is the emotion you're feeling it's called like I'm like like getting granular with it like are you are you upset are you disappointed are you frustrated if you can put a like a word on that emotion then i think you'll be able to figure out then what action you want to take to manage it much more than just being like i feel like shit you know yeah Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm just thinking about my morning. <laughs> I was like, I think I was feeling all of those things. So I just wanted to get back. So this idea of um, of being a Velcro type person and yeah. having, you know, just sort of like the weight of the day accumulating and like on your shoulders and you have a breakdown. I mean, could you talk a little, I love this idea of like being like the un-you. Mm-hmm. Um, so much. It's just, it seems like a magic trick that you can do if you can remember to do it. And I just, I, I wonder if like in this moment at the end, like Erica's feeling like the, the typical, you know, her typical, just like, I did all of these things, but like, I'm still like, you know, all these like micro stressors have like accumulated and totally broken me. Like, it, like, is that, is that maybe an opportunity or a moment where you can sort of apply how you, you know, I know explain this sort of like on you mindset and you kind of flip the script a little bit? Absolutely. You know, I, 
there's so much pressure on us these days also. Everyone's like, be yourself, be yourself all the time. And sometimes it's so liberating. Be like, what is the opposite of the thing that I want to do right now? You know, what is the opposite? How do I get some distance from how I'm feeling? And so sometimes I'll say to people like, what would be the un-you thing to do in this moment? And it's just, it's so liberating when you, because it gives you perspective. It gives you some distance from sort of what's going on and what's the, what's the, you know, or like take yourself out of this, what's on you. And one way to kind of be on you is think about who's somebody you admire right now. Like what would they do? Like what would Oprah do in this moment? You know, what would, you know, just if you can sort of gain some distance from the emotion. Another way, like it's called self-distancing as well in, in psychology terms. It's when you, you, you kind of can leave like the heat of your emotions that's maybe making you overreact or feel like just overwhelmed. This chaos is just engulfing you. You know, you can say, what, um, you know, what would a fly on the, uh, what would a fly on the wall do? You know, or what would the fly on the wall see in this moment? Or if I were to advise a friend right now, what would I tell them to do? Because there's something called Solomon's paradox. King Solomon was brilliant and he would give great advice to people, but he was, his like own life was a total mess. And so we're really bad sometimes at seeing our own stuff. But when we like, oh, you know, but how would I advise a friend in this moment? Like you suddenly gain clarity and you have some distance from it though. So I think being on you, there are many ways out of being yourself. Sometimes it might be, you know, what's the opposite of what do I feel like doing? What somebody, like, what would somebody I admire, um, what would they do right now? What would my future self do right now? You know, if I were a fly on the wall watching this, what would I say? So anytime you can gain some distance is some way to kind of remove yourself from like the heat of your emotions that can just kind of lead you astray. The future yeah. self one could be a little tricky though. I might stay away from that. <laughs> seems, like, <laughs> seems like potentially too dangerous. Because <laughs> who knows? Um, but yeah, I love I love that idea. And it seems I don't it just seems like such an obvious and maybe like silly thing to do to be like, oh, what would you know, like what would we do? But it kind of, um, yeah, I get it. Like, I, I'm like excited to really put that one into practice. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that would be pretty effective for me. I like to pretend. I guess it's closer to like the version of ourselves I think we would like to be, you know, and there are all these studies like with, you know, with kids and, and asking them to focus on, uh, you know, like a boring math task, but they also have this temptation of playing a game on an iPad. And when they're dressed up actually in like Batman or Dora the Explorer costumes and they're asked like channel that um, character, they have far more willpower and motivation, you know, to actually persevere in some way. So I think literally like when we like think about or we channel, you know, some character that we might admire in some way that it does have this incredible effect of like lifting us out of ourselves and helping us tap into strengths we sometimes don't even know that we have. So yeah, I if, uh, if it were socially acceptable for me to walk around in a Wonder Woman costume, then yeah. I think I would really have far fewer stressors in my day. <laughs> May I suggest that? Yes. <laughs> it's unfortunate that only kids get to play dress up and not be mocked. <laughs> um, I love that idea. Yeah. Um, there's sort of like the, uh, what, what was it? Maybe it was someone we interviewed, I don't remember, but just sort of like doing the, you know, if you're going into like a meeting or like an interview or something that, you know, you have to sort of like perform and be somewhat bigger than yourselves and sell or pitch, you know, just sort of like doing these certain poses, like the victory, you know, the V in the air and all of these things. Like it does, it, there is a very strange connection. Like it triggers something very tangible. Yeah. I think it's probably Amy Cuddy, who maybe you interviewed, and oh. she does a lot of power posing. Oh, and that cool. is, she's an amazing woman, I think. And the idea of the embodied cognition, like actually how you hold your body, really affects how you feel. And we even know that, like, if you are hunched over and leaning down and walking even like a depressed walk, you are much more likely to feel depressed. If, you know, when they've done this with college students and they've asked them to participate in these studies, versus when you're sitting up straight. You know, your shoulders are back, that you feel um, stronger and larger. And especially for women, that's something that we don't do enough. But it's, it's even like the clothes that we wear can also affect how we feel. And they did this interesting study with a, a white coat. And some people were told that it was, um, this white coat was a doctor's smock and others were a, a doctor's coat. And others were told that it was, I think, an artist's smock. And the ones who were told it was a doctor's smock were much more likely to continue doing these sort of challenging math problems too. I mean, I, I imagine probably the opposite if they were 
given something like creative to do, they probably would have felt better if they were, you know, told that, um, you know, that it was an artist's smock. But even so we forget, you know, I think in psychiatry, we look so much at sort of um, mind body, but body mind is so big. And, um, and, you know, I never studied how much exercise affects the brain in, in medical school, really. I never, you know, realized how much even food affects how one feels. And now it's really one of the first things I ask patients when I first meet them. Yeah. 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 I mean, it feels like, sorry, go ahead, see. No, I was just going to tell you that, you know, where the, where the, where the, where the body goes, the brain follows and vice versa. Right. So this is where I put on yoga, yoga outfit every day, just in the off chance that my brain follows my body. So I'm trying to just sort of like put it, encourage it, give it a little gentle nudge. So that's the equivalent of your Wonder Woman costume. Yes. Yes, exactly. But, but, you know, but actually you're tapping into a like well-established psychology strategy, which is, you know, to, to do a behavior that you want to do. You know, we talk about motivation, 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 but as we all know, motivation comes and goes. Sometimes you have it in the morning, you know, by five o'clock in the afternoon, you don't have any. But one of the best things one can do is make whatever the behavior you want easier. So if it is putting on your yoga thing, like, so even if you just kind of get the inspiration to maybe do yoga, you don't have to go and change, like you've got it on. And even I've got a patient who always wears, like she just wears her jog bra now. She won't wear any other bras. And she's like, I've got my jog bra. I may go for a walk. Yeah. Like or a run. Yeah. It's really dress for the job you want. I don't know. It's yes. Just, yes. Just for the mood you want to be in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like it. So there's another part in the book that um, you get into, and I was just having this conversation with, actually, interestingly, with my uncle yesterday, who is a therapist, but he was, you know, he was talking more on like a personal level, not having anything to do with, you know, how he sort of applies his, well, certainly not to do with practice in, you know, in anyone else's life, but it all has to do with uncertainty, right? And I mean, this is like a topic that I feel is, certainly much more in the conversation, whether you're coming from like a coaching perspective and the idea of getting comfortable with uncertainty. And then obviously over the last year or so, this is something that we've all had to just, you know, we've we've been hearing it over and over, this messaging around getting comfortable with uncertainty. Um, but the reality is like, people just aren't, right? I mean, people want to know outcomes. That's like, you attach yourself to when you're thinking about whether it's like a business problem or a relationship or you know like a new relationship in particular like you just kind of want to know how it's going to turn out because that is the only thing that will in your head give you a sense of comfort even though the reality is we all know like there's no way to know the future but like i i guess my my question is just you know why are we so fixated on needing to have this sense of certainty and are there people out there who legitimately are just like yeah, yeah, it's just whatever it's going to be, and which just doesn't make any sense to me in our Western culture. I think you're, but I mean, you're right. It is this human need to have certainty. It's almost like a survival atavistic need to sort of know how something is going to happen. In in our, I think our pre-pandemic lives, there was almost this illusion of certainty. The way we would know things like probably will turn out this way if the weatherman says it's going to rain, like it probably will. But you know the. Certainty sort of is a two-edged sword. I think when you actually allow yourself to sort of accept some of the uncertainty in your life, it also does open up other doors. Like for instance, in relationships, people can get so certain about their significant other. And, you know, for people who've been married for like 50 years, and they'll sometimes go and see a couples therapist. And, um, you know, and the one spouse will be like, oh, I know, you know, she's always, you know, she's always doing the same old thing. And then I know she's going to do this and then she's going to do that. And, you know, and she'll say, well, he's always, he's going to read the newspaper and then he's going to fart and then he's going to do this and that. This idea of predictability in somebody's life. But, you know, she said, this therapist I know had said, well, you know, nobody's ever come to me and said, you know, my dog is going to do this and, and then, or my plant is going to do that. Like they're, they don't have these expectations or certainty around it. Like they bring, like a a sense of um, curiosity to see what their dog or their child or their plant might do, might do, but not with their like significant other, because they have this sort of illusion of like you know that oh I know this person so well, and that that can actually sort of take away I think from a connection one has. And so she always advises, and I sort of something I think it's really important is to always look for what's new. To her, that's the essence of mindfulness. If you're actually priming yourself, like actually what is your significant other going to do that might surprise you today? Or like look for 
look for newness and prime yourself for that rather than like, here we go again. Like I know the end of this movie and then, you know, cue this, cue that. And um, I think that there's something really powerful in the uncertainty and actually the, there's a beauty in, in the not knowing um, of, you know, not being able to predict how somebody's going to turn out. And I think so much of how all of us behave is about our environments and, you know, the difficulties or the challenges or whatever. And we, we sort of over endow people with like, oh, this is their character. This is who they are and think not enough maybe about the environment that they're behaving within. And, you know, we judge others by, by what they do, their actions. And we judge ourselves by our, you know, by, by our intentions. Like, oh, I cut that person off in traffic because I'm late or, you know, but if someone else cuts me off in traffic, they're a jerk. You know, so there's a, I think when we sort of can at least look for novelty in people and give them the benefit of the doubt in ways, even accept the uncertainty is actually kind of something that, and, and that certainty is an illusion in some way that it can make it a little bit easier to get comfortable with it. And there are a couple of strategies that might be helpful for your listeners too to think about when you are sort of overwhelmed with, you know, anxiety or uncertainty about something is, you know, think about the worst thing that could happen right now. And you get them to sort of articulate that and even write it down. Okay, um, think about then the best thing that could happen as a result of this. And so you're sort of asking them to sort of do like the bookends of extremes and then say, okay, what's the most likely thing going to happen now? How this will turn out? I had a lot of success with people, you know, around the election, like looking at how that would go. And just because people sort of think of doomsday scenario and we, we dwell so much in dread. Um, and it's really like, you know, you can spend, you think of all of those hours you spent even watching pundits weighing in on what could happen. And it's truly just a waste of, of your time, even with a, it's a distortion of the future. Like you just don't know. And what is that saying? Like yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery. Today is a pre- is the present. That's why they call it a gift. Yes. So it yeah. is that like sense of how do you sort of stay actually looking for what's new around you and appreciating that rather than in this sort of expectation that is so dictated by your past and how somebody's going to behave or what they're going to do. I mean, I've had, you know, just our judgment can sort of cloud, like our expectations can really shift our experience. And even with myself, I've noticed that like, wait, do I judge somebody sometimes based on their appearance? Or if, um, if I was working in the emergency room, am I judging in some way? And I think when you bring an expectation of novelty and uncertainty, and you kind of try to, at least you acknowledge that these things might be affecting you in some way, or I'll read the you know a sheet saying like, oh, this person's been hospitalized seven times in this um, much more, you know, they were last year, last week, that I can think about, well, maybe... If I just bring that to their past to it, I'm just going to judge them according to that. Um, and I think that's a very sort of unfair and actually limited way for me to see somebody else. That's interesting. I think that there is, well, maybe it's a good segue because I wanted to talk a little bit about catastrophizing because that is uh, something that I tend to do quite often. <laughs> I think we talked about it recently, but yeah, I like this idea of, you know, taking the best best case scenario, worst case scenario, and then just sort of doing that exercise of like, okay, now what's the middle? Um, Because I, you know, I think I talked about it before, sort of in the context of having kids and... um, In the panic attacks interview that we did, to be be specific. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's a theme here. There's a theme. But uh, I think that there is... And a friend of mine who likes to play psychiatrist a lot kind of pointed out that, you know, catastrophizing is sort of like and I'm so curious to get your take on it, sort of like rooted in shame. Um, And I was like, go on. Yeah, say more. (laughs) She she sort of explained that like, and I I, I thought it was, it was, it was definitely like an aha moment for me, but you know, when I have these like sort of panic attacks or, or these catastrophic thoughts of like, oh my God, I'm going to die of whatever cancer because I didn't take care of myself properly or didn't exercise or I like drank too much alcohol or whatever it is. And then suddenly my children are orphaned and they're going to have like a horrible, I mean, it's just like literally like the worst downward spiral, but it's, um, but it's kind of like when I, when I think about it and sort of like follow that thought, it's like, yes, like, why do I think I'm going to die of cancer? Oh, because I'm like, I am like a shame. There's like a shame that's sort of like sitting right next to it. That is like, oh God, Zoe, like you didn't take care of yourself. Like that's just, 
very shameful kind of like behavior. And it kind of like goes in this constant loop that um, I don't know how to kind of like to, uh, to sort of like stop that record. To interrupt it. I mean, but it's so interesting. I think self-loathing is the way I think of it is so it's sort of like the, the cousin of catastrophizing, right? Like it is that sense of what have I done? How have I contributed to this in some way? Like that there's a, a personal fault here that you're like you're pointing to. And um, you know, we, we know that people when when we take things personally, we see it as like pervasive. Um and like it, it, this is sort of always, you know, this is sort of my global, like I will always feel this way and that it's permanent. Like this is like something that, that it's whatever my bad behavior was is going to stick with me and I can't get rid of it. Is, you know, if you can sort of flip that script a little bit and sort of see maybe this isn't about, you know, me here. How do I remove myself from this? And, you know, that's one example. Like this is one moment, but it's not going to be permanent. It doesn't have to infect everything that I do. And I think when you can gain that distance and sort of try to identify it with language of like, okay, where is self-loathing or shame functioning here? And you can like put your finger on it. And then you almost like release the valve of pressure there and say, okay, like this is why I'm catastrophizing. And then you you can kind of like it's almost like a windshield wiper. You get to erase the, the 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 raindrops off of there and sort of start afresh and be like, wait, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, what's the, you know the best thing that could happen? Okay, what's the most likely one there? And I think you can just put things in perspective a little bit with even some of those unused strategies or self distancing strategies. It can help you, um, you know, because in the moment we're so we're so challenge to sort of see beyond the runway. And I think when you can get up to 30,000 feet, because women just live with so much guilt around them, you know, and I I always thought if like I had a magic wand, if there was one thing I could do, it would be to wipe away that guilt. And especially with working moms too, that they feel so much guilt. And there's a study that came out about two years ago showing that their kids do just fine. They actually, you know, do really, really well. And they have, you know, different role models. And the idea that it's okay that if you weren't able to bake cookies and be like, you know, part of the PTA and, you know, we, we internalize it in a way that is, um, that just feeds that shame, you know, constantly. And so I think when we can sort of transcend it and like be unnew about it, then it can sort of help us get closer to not a guilt-free or shame-free life, but at least being able to pinpoint it and be aware of it and live with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Oh, the guilt. Where's that one? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's I like, know. It's constant. Um, it sounds like sounds like a lot of these problems can be solved by just distancing, getting some distance from myself. <laughs> I need to just get away from myself. It seems. Okay, learning. We're learning. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's another question because this is another thing I feel like is kind of constantly part of the conversation. And it's the idea of focusing on the things that you can control as opposed to what you can't, um, which in, you know, in a macro sense totally makes sense. But do you feel like the flip side or is there a possibility? I mean, I know there's a possibility. What is the like probability that focusing on the things you can control then flips into like an obsession over the things that you can control to the point that you become like a control freak for lack of a better phrase, but that's not actually what it is. It's like, you know, you're focusing on like, okay, well, this is, I can't, I can't do anything about what's happening in the world, but I know I can like take better care of myself. And then you become like obsessive about exercise, diet, et cetera. Or, you know, I know I can control my response to this. And then you become like paralyzed by any ability to be spontaneous because you're like, is, is that that feels like it's a real thing? Oh, it's it's so real, and I think sometimes people like really dig into. I mean, look, these look eating disorders. You look at like sort of where like you see sort of control that really can become so toxic in someone's life, uh, or you know, just it, it's great to want to tidy up your desk, but you can get like really obsessive about it in some way, or it can really. There's always there's all these strengths. There's also like a shadow side too, you know, and what are the ways that you're not doing it. But I think what you just said is that the 
that flexibility is really like the greatest cognitive strength in the world, you know, and to be able to sort of maybe in this scenario, this is the like probably a good response for me, but maybe in a different or a similar one, but not this one, it would help be helpful if I respond in another way. Like, here's an example. Like, if um, people talk a lot about reframing, like, oh, I um, maybe I did badly on that science test because the teacher's really mean. Like when you're actually like when you're using reframing to kind of blame when you, you might have had control over something, but you're using reframing to to like sort of take yourself off the hook. Like it's so yeah. not helpful, you know. But then, but if you but for things that you might have control over, then you can sort of well say, well maybe I you know whatever. Like if you you know maybe there's no you could, there's no accountability for why there was a huge you know traffic jam and you couldn't get to, to work on time and then reframing can help you. So I think when you have multiple strategies to deploy that you can get less locked into that like rigid, you know, box. And you know, I think what is it? Anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness, right? So if Ooh, you have wait, say some, that again. Yeah, I'm gonna need to hear that again. Wait. <laughs> anxiety equals like uncertainty times powerlessness. And so yeah. you can see how one really kind of amplifies yeah. the other. And there's a slightly different thing of, um, you know, that of when you have like, what do you have power over? And there's certain things that you, maybe you, it's an illusion you have power over that. Like maybe the illusion, like you know somebody that well. There's certain things you just won't. And you sort of, ha- that's where I think kind of accepting those, those things that you have no control over it versus like, what do you have some, certainty over which is very little and what do you have some control over which is probably like you know you, you don't have any control over really how well you sleep sometimes you know yes it's great to go to bed early and yes it's you know great not to have your phone in your room but sometimes you're just not going to sleep well and that's not you know but that it's not that that's i think those days don't have to like, it's not going to be tomorrow either you'll probably sleep really well the next night then and so i think that, that the idea you can't control there's a lot of those things that i think almost the wellness industry tells us we can control that we can't. Um, and I think there's a lot of, you know, we, there's a lot of information around, like you can almost like download happiness. You can, um, you know, order vitality in some way, but there's a lot of, I think that you don't have to go off and eat, pray, love your way to any of these things or kind of find yourself. You don't have to immerse yourself in some, um, you know, retreat for months, but I think there's, there are actions you can take to at least feel fortified and do the best that you can. Yeah. I love that point about being sort of like, you don't have to go within stuff to be with. What, what, what is that? Maybe there was a quote, but yeah, I, oh, think, I think happiness yeah, comes from like with, not from within. And we, yeah. we maybe overvalue, you know, we know there are those things like eat, sleep, move more that are vital to our, our health, our, not just our physical health, but our mental health. But like the biggest reservoir of, of um, well-being is our connections with others, you know? And so I, I think that we don't really, maybe because it's easy to say like, okay, go to the gym or eat well, or, you know, go to bed early, but actually how do we connect well with others is so important. And we know that every time that we're with somebody else and we're looking at our phone, we're like essentially unsharing an experience. Like, you know, when you eat chocolate, they did these studies and when you eat, like two people eat chocolate and they're like both present it tastes much better versus like when one person sort of distracted, the chocolate's kind of like, eh. And it's the same piece of chocolate, but it, there's something so great about that shared experience. And I think when we're sort of distracted looking at our phones, like, oh yeah, whatever, that that's a, it's a, it diminishes um, the uplift that could have been there. That's so yeah, it's interesting. like going to a movie theater. I mean, it's just such a, yeah. such a more exciting and positive experience when you're in the theater, like having an intimate kind of shared experience with, a bunch of other people and you're all laughing at the same time. We're all crying at the same time. You know, it's, yeah. I miss going to the movie I, theater. I do like going to the movie theater by myself, but to your point, like you definitely laugh more when you're there in the company of someone else. Yeah. Totally. Um, it's like what they call it collective effervescence, you know, yeah. like that's like shared joy. And even I think like one of the things I've missed the most is not being able to go to a concert or, you know, because it's also like watching the other people's reactions to it. Yeah. It's not just your own, that sort of shared experience. And, you know, we, we, we know that all the time. There was an interesting study looking at families who had um, been sent out to, to dinner and were um, the ones who used their phones during dinner versus the families that didn't were the ones who, who, who used their phones were much more likely to be bored, you know, and like enjoy the meal less. And actually the, the meal even tasted less, less good. Mm-hmm. 
And so it just like affects those from everything from like just your entire experience, I think, when you're sort of half there. There was a yeah. really interesting article a couple of weeks ago in the Times. I think it was Adam Grant that um, it was about this recent Foo Fighters concert. And about, I mean, that's how the article started. And then it kind of like, you know, exploded into this whole other thing, but it all had to do with shared experience and how like, oh. you know, it was, there was people going to see music for the first time and Foo Fighters are just so, you know, there's so much energy anyway, but it, it's a fascinating piece and, you know, Adam Grant and all about positive psychology and all of that. So um, Adam and I, we just did a panel on, um, we were talking about like sort of the post-pandemic me and I, we had to sort of rename it as like the mid-pandemic me. Yeah. But I, I love him. We were talking a lot about, you know, there's a, a lot of research around post-traumatic growth uh, and like kind of what, you know, what kind of creates the, the like opportunity to have that. And, you know, the, you know, people after in response to a trauma, you can either, you know, get PTSD, you could be languishing. Adam's written a lot about that. Um, or you could be resilient, which is actually the most common response to to significant stress. Or you could experience post traumatic growth, and that's where you feel like you have, you know, deeper relationships. You um, feel like you're you have like discovered new personal strengths that you weren't using before, and maybe renewed um, potential and possibility. And really, kind of trying to drill down on like what are the ways people right now could be deepening their relationships, like using their strengths and like seeing new possibility and potential. And how could they even take the behaviors that maybe they've enjoyed in pandemic life um, moving forward in some way? And how do you kind of make behavior change stick? And there's so much, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, wait, you know, one, you know, behaviors, there's a lot of like fear about going back to the way things were also. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, they don't want to do that. And it's a, you know, all the behavior change research shows that you just have to be really deliberate about it. You have to make yourself accountable and you have to expect relapses. You know, you've just got to, you know, sometimes not every day is going to, you know, have those priorities, but then you can, every day is a fresh start. You know, so what can you do? You know, maybe yesterday you didn't live up to that, but tomorrow you can do it. You don't have to wait for New Year's or another pandemic to try again. I mean, that is very, that's very comforting to hear it that. It is, it's very positive. Yeah, I mean, because you would just assume that after these huge events, you know, we're all kind of bracing ourselves for like the post, you know, the post pandemic, the post traumatic, whatever me. And I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but there's definitely a fear that it's like not going to be good, like as a, as a, you know, society. But, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's quite the opposite and that we do tend to come out of these horrible experiences um just just fine yeah like, it's really interesting uh like you know like what they call like big r resilience that people are unbelievably resilient and even you know the expected uh divorces like that hasn't happened actually that people are reporting that they have greater um respect for and appreciation for their partner in the wake of of the pandemic and just being with them, they have a greater appreciation for their family and their friends. And 80% of people saying something positive has come out of this, you know, unbelievably challenging time. So the default actually is resilience. Um, even after 9-11, there were expectations a lot of, P- of a lot of PTSD in New York City, and it actually didn't materialize. Um, and so I think we we sometimes assume that people are for, far more fragile than they than they are. It's not to say that there won't be some people who develop PTSD, but the I think the the big R resilience is like our, how most people do respond to stress. But what I'm really interested in is like little R resilience. How do you kind of build more resilience into your everyday life? You know, so you have, um, and I think it is through vitality that people are able to feel more resilient to just the the mess and chaos of our daily lives. I love that. Yeah, that is. Uh, I'm trying to bounce back just from like you know breakfast. <laughs> yeah, it's at the door. <laughs> I swear, it's like this. I don't understand why I can't overcome this moment. It's like it's such a record. It's like oh my god. When we talk about micro stressors. I feel like kids are never really on the list. Maybe that's just like a macro, but it's just it's funny. It's this. Um, it's just this constant like shitstorm of a morning where I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> like the chaos, the screaming, the fighting, the physical. Six year olds like peed all over the. I was like, what is going on? Like, this is insanity. It's like a total zoo. 
but it's definitely on a loop. And I would put that in a bucket for myself personally as like a daily micro stressor. And it's like, sometimes I'm just like, Jesus, it's like I get on that ride and I can't get off and it kind of sets the tone for the entire day. Yeah. Sorry, did I just go off on a tangent? <laughs> no, like it's so it true doesn't though. Work out. Well, I mean, we I used to talk about that. Yeah, but it's just sort of like, is is my little R, my little my little resilience R, like not uh, not working in that moment? I don't know. I need to find a sort of I need to find a tool there, I and mean, there's got to be a lever I can pull. And maybe it is just sort of like being okay with like the absolute chaos that like the you know the wake of the storm. Ugh. I mean, how old are your kids? <laughs> uh, four and six. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah right. you know, there's a lot of um, you know interesting research there too around parents who you know in a study that when they were just like called randomly during different points of the day, how they were far less happy than people who didn't have kids, just because they were so stressed out. Like especially on weekends, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, like they spilled ice cream and they're crying because they fell off the cone and whatever, you know. But overall, they felt that they had they had a uh, sort of, they were very satisfied with their lives and a great sense of meaning, but their moment to moment daily stress was sky high in that way. Um, there's interesting research, though, that looking at parents and kids who seem quite, who are actually really happier and I think have more peace and calm when they let their kids engage in free play and they're scheduled less and they are just allowed to do probably stuff that maybe even we were allowed to do when we were kids, but that today kids aren't allowed to do because there's so much structure and it's like, we have to get ready for this or ready to do that. And it is so like putting on the shoes or getting the equipment for whatever that thing is, that just creates so much extra tension. Actually, when you give kids even chores around the house and you actually ask them like, okay, what, um, you know, if you want a kid, like a six-year-old to clean their room, you know, you can be like, clean your room or try to like tap into their motivation around like picking up their toys. Like, you know, what would be good about cleaning up your toys right now and get them to generate their own answers? And that kind of taps into their intrinsic motivation. Like, oh, well, maybe I could find my doll then or my box then when I'm looking for them tomorrow morning. You know, if you can get them to kind of figure out why and how helpful that would be to do that, they'd be much more likely that, to put it away and maybe make something a little less chaotic. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm definitely in the camp of... Um to sort of the the free play, let them just be the free ranger, yeah, free range and uh, free free range, free range children. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, my husband is like complete opposite end of that spectrum. So it's uh, it's about a lot of scheduling. <laughs> There's a lot of activity. <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, it's probably a little bit of structure is good, but you know, there's a great book by Lenore Skinazzi called Free Range Kids. And she goes through all the research looking at how these kids and they learn like without having somebody there to like organize play for them, they are just so much more creative and they have so much, um, and they, they get along better with other kids and because they know how to like negotiate toys and balls and games and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And I think it's less stressful for parents too. Oh, God. Sure. We'll be sharing all this info later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my God, I feel like we could just go on. It's uh, you're like such a wealth of um knowledge. It's such a, you're such a wonderful resource, and this book is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything you want to touch on that we didn't that we didn't point to? Or is there any point you want to explore? Um, I don't know if you want to talk about mental health and um, like perfectionism and that being such an issue oh, too. Like I think being I don't, you know, I think there's so much, there's a lot of research right now on pressure to be like a perfectionist, especially women who feel pressure to, their expectations are so high and especially young women. I think a lot has to do with self-comparison. It takes about 17 seconds, I think, to scroll through Instagram and feel badly about your body, about, um, you know, being excluded. And so it's, it's, you know, your personal expectations, your social expectations, even your expectations, you know, of other people to be perfect. But I think today we are more, uh, people are more educated about mental health and they're a little bit more understanding maybe about other people's challenges and mental health issues, but they're still very unforgiving about their own. Um, I think when it comes to themselves, they're still like, they have these super high expectations and, um, and, and standards that are just unrealistic and just an on-ramp, I think, to anxiety and depression and feeling left out. And, you know, we all want, we have the sense of belonging in any any moment I think we feel excluded, we, it, it's such a negative experience for us. 
Um, and I think having role models is so important. And somebody like a Simone Biles, who is, you know, role models who also are generous enough to like let you see some of the challenges and and that they face and the cracks is incredibly. It's generous. I mean, it, it's it's you're sort of giving back because I think we we hold people to such high standards because and we hold ourselves to them. And I think when our role models let us like pull back the curtain a little bit and see how they've struggled. I think that can be incredibly inspiring um, for for those you know who who hold them in high regard. Yeah, yeah I think the- that even that even ties into some of the conversations that we do more in like a business direction rather than a you know wellness direction. But you know we're we're constantly reminded and reminding others that you know for every huge success story you hear from a founder. Um, there are a, a bunch of failures behind it, and that's actually the stuff that's more interesting. We've had multiple conversations, you know, publicly about our own failures, and I think that's that's where the learning comes. And so it's the same thing. It's kind of cracking that open and saying, like, okay, well, the guy that founded, you know, X Y Z company had a, quite a few, you know, trips up along the way, and uh, if he's comfortable sharing that, then that's only going to benefit everyone else. Yeah. No, it's true. I remember. Um... Reading that Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spank, that her father used to ask her every day when she would come home from school, like, "What did you fail at today?" And probably, you know, today if it was like in parenting circles, that would be considered horrible to ask your kid. But she said her dad felt that it was if she wasn't failing, then she wasn't trying, and almost just sort of build that back into our lives is just something that I used to think of fail like the word fail was a sort of four letter word, and kind of getting comfortable with that and. I think that that can actually sort of help one deal with uncertainty even and like sort of wanting, having a certain expectation is actually sometimes it's not going to work out. Making that a completely normal part of our everyday life is also, is also like a kind of therapeutic way of, of, of dealing with that perfectionist sort of culture that we live in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so true. I need to start asking my kids that and myself literally <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's so discouraging if like you know for the first time or if you fail and there's just so much shame around it or that you just feel so poor about about yourself. I mean, there's just there's no way you're going to um, to try anything again. It's mm-hmm. just it's too it's too upsetting. Yeah, um, they've done studies looking at you know at like a kids given like some math problems and those who got uh, like a hundred on them were less likely and like perfect written across the top were less likely than when rechallenged to persevere with more challenging ones because i think the the idea of then not being perfect is so paralyzing you know and so just having teachers put like a little post it note on their on their papers saying like you know i have high expectations and i know you can meet them like those types of things i think can also give a kid or any of us even and i think in our lives like the license to actually like try and even be willing to, maybe it's not going to work out this time, but it might next time. And knowing people sort of hold you in high regard as well. I think that's that. And they say the two most, um, you know, social, the social interactions that give us the biggest boost are meaningful conversations and also the experience of feeling responded to, cared about and understood. Like that experience of felt love. And it's not just in romantic relationships, but also when you sort of feel your teacher cares about you, your boss cares about you, your coworker cares about you in some way, that that is, that like kind of positive connection is really like a lifeline for all of us. And I think as essential as eating well, sleeping well, you know, moving a lot and doing all this sort of, um, all the sort of lifestyle interventions. But if we, we really need to sort of have those to provide felt love and to be recipients of it. And we're not going to get that on Instagram, right? Uh, a very, very unlikely. What is <laughs> like that? Kind of cotton candy. Uh, comparison is the thief of joy, or something like that. Self comparison is the thief, thief of joy, and it's true. I mean, there's a lot of like you know research now looking at young girls, and we're seeing that they are truly. I mean, their mental health is really suffering, and you know, it's kind of pointing towards social media that's doing that. And boys don't have that. Like they are playing video games and they're connecting online in different ways. But girls feel so badly about their their bodies, about them themselves that, you know, in you know, in my day, like you were like if you broke up with somebody, you didn't get to see that they were now with somebody else. You didn't have that exposure to. And I think that constant bombardment and the only way actually to help little girls through that is just to teach them, first of all, that know that you're looking at 
like a, a curated image, know that this person's like highlight reel is not their everyday life. And so you have to know that it's basically just entertainment. Um, but also a lot of people argue that young girls shouldn't be given um, phones until they're in ninth grade. But you can't have your kid be the only like weird one left out. So it has to be obviously like more of like a class decision that, that parents would do that would be probably pretty hard. But if you can create a norm around at least delaying that as long as you can, I think it can be really helpful because young girls, you know, you're even seeing um, suicidal ideation and self-harm in girls younger and younger and younger, even like 12 years old, 11 years old and stuff. So I think we really need to be able to like kind of proactively, even in schools, like kind of be fortifying them and not just wait for problems to happen. Like how do we kind of build their strengths up and fortify them and kind of create vitality in these young women um, so they feel strong? Yeah, God, it's so, I'm so, I mean... I'm so grateful that that was not a factor for us when we were growing up. It was hard enough, you know. <laughs> I just, I honestly can't imagine what it would have been like for so many, myself included. I mean, ugh. anyway. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. I'm really just praying that it doesn't exist by the time my daughter. Yeah, exactly. There's a chance. You know, Ten. <laughs> yeah, TikTok. My like daughter's doing like TikToks, and like I can't even watch. It's terrifying, and yeah. uh, you, know, you just don't even want to know. No. <laughs> Um, well, we've taken a good deal of your time already, and this has been amazing. And we would love to just chat all day. Um, maybe you'll come back. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking. I, I admire what you do, and trust me, I would even you know sometimes say like, "What would you guys do?" You know, it, you are role models. I think for all of us and for so many women, and you know, what would Erica or Zoe do? I think would be a really good um, way to reframe any challenge. Um, you know moving forward. I think I'm going to keep, you know, highway to well in mind. What would those ladies do um, in a sort of given challenging moment? So thank you. Thank you so much. And we would love everybody to, uh, or encourage everybody to read Everyday Vitality and we'll send them to positiveprescription.com as well. Thank you. I'd love that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Samantha. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.